This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where there's good news to share on the COVID crisis. Florida reported almost 4,200 new cases of coronavirus Monday. That was the lowest since June 23rd. The state also reported 91 more fatalities Monday. That raises the death toll to 8,408. Almost half of those deaths, more than 4,000 of them, were reported during the past 30 days. The governor facing tough questions after the Hillsborough School Board votes to start the school year with remote learning only and hold off on reopening classrooms for another month. The state responded by threatening to withhold money, and the governor claims kids are safer in school than they are at home. This is low risk for school-aged children. Uh, it's less risk, the CDC has pointed out, much less risk than seasonal influenza. And I also think it's pretty clear that the school children are not the drivers of community spread. And even as they threaten to withhold funding, the governor and the education commissioner insist they are giving local schools all the flexibility they need, as long as they reopen. As Congress and the president try to figure out the next move on a new COVID-19 stimulus bill, 200,000 Floridians are still waiting for the first check to arrive. Americans who are married to, or are the children of undocumented immigrants, didn't get that $1,200 payment that helped the rest of us cope with the crisis. I'm asking Senator Rick Scott not to forget about me and my family. We need help. We have always paid our fair share of taxes. And I should not be punished just because of the person I chose to marry. On today's Sunrise interview, we'll talk with liberal troublemaker Anna Escamani. The state representative from Orlando has been a thorn in the side of the Florida GOP, but now she's going after three of her fellow Democrats in the Florida House. For me, it's not even about progressivism versus just moderates. These are not moderates. These are Republicans with Democrats. In, in their title. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man accused of attacking his Lyft driver because he did not like the plastic shield designed to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in his car. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Tuesday, August 11th. The state health department reported 4,155 new cases of coronavirus Monday. Bad as that sounds, it's actually the lowest number of new infections reported in Florida in almost seven weeks. The total number of cases since the start of the pandemic has reached almost 537,000, which works out to about one out of every 40 residents of the state. The phased reopening of Florida schools began Monday. More districts will open their doors tomorrow for the start of the new semester. Governor Ron DeSantis and Education Commissioner Richard Corcoran have been accused of running roughshod over the local districts by ordering them to reopen by the end of the month or lose money. Now, the big fear is that schools will turn into super spreaders of COVID-19, but the governor believes kids are safer at school than they would be at home. Nothing's risk-free in life. Uh, there's nothing we can do that's going to be zero. But the risks are, what well, I would say, low for the students. The risk of the schools being real drivers of the epidemic, certainly that's not been validated in the observed experience up to this point. And then you have to look, what are the costs of not offering in-person, and then make that judgment. But if they don't have access to in-person, then what are the risks there? And I think everyone from the CDC director to, to a lot of folks have looked at it, say those risks there are more substantial. It's already low risk for the school children, and then you do things to mitigate that even further. And so, in my in my view, it's a it's a matter of how do you balance that. You know, Richard's talked about things like suicide, depression. I think we were talking with some of the uh, the, the parents and the teachers just about um, you know the toll it takes on mental health 
for these kids to not be able to go in and, and socialize and be a part of something and to be stuck um, you know, at home day after day. And, and on the flip side of that, I'm sure there's a lot of kids that really aren't at home and are actually going out and doing things anyways. So in that case, wouldn't you rather than be in a structured environment? Uh, to me, this is one of the safer places because you have people that care about them, looking out for them. The governor was speaking at another one of his roundtable discussions on COVID-19 in the Tampa Bay area, and frankly, his timing couldn't have been worse. The state education commissioner just rejected the reopening plan from Hillsborough County because their school board wants to start with remote learning first and wait a month before reopening classrooms. Reporters pounced on Commissioner Richard Corcoran after he talked about how much flexibility they're giving to the local school boards. We recognize that the local school districts are in charge and and what we did was work with them. We worked with the superintendents. We worked with their chief financial officers. And they came to us in the summer and said, we're in a real predicament. And so we came up with an emergency order in conjunction and collaboration with them that gave them complete flexibility so that they would have certainty on how the funding worked. They would have certainty on what options would be able to be given to children. They had flexibility for charters and, and, and private schools. And so we've given them that flexibility, and, and they can absolutely make whatever decision they want. That's that that, that is they, they they have that opportunity. I, I just want to know what happens if the whole world uh, doesn't listen to what you said. Yeah, what would happen if they don't open? Well, they have you're a, saying you give flexibility, but at the same time they're saying they need to open. So what would happen if they follow the school board and they don't open? And why the superintendent is not here? The, the um, opportunity to open or close is 100%. We've given that flexibility to the locals. And that was what the emergency order did at their request. At their asking us to say, hey, what do we do if we need to come up with an innovative model? How does that funding work? And so we did an emergency order gave them that complete flexibility. What are the possible repercussions here if they choose to keep going with this four weeks of online That's learning? why we came up with the emergency orders because if you, if you go to a um, strictly a virtual model under the existing law without the emergency order, then the funding is less. And so we gave, did the emergency order so that those locals would not have to worry about getting funded less. It was to give them the true flexibility to be able to serve every single person here in this room. Some want to go back to in-person in school. Some teachers want to come. Most teachers want to come back. Most students want to come back. All of that flexibility, fine. Give them all that flexibility, and we will fully fund you. And we won't even count the October count to give you that much flexibility. It was 100% to give choice and flexibility to the districts. And that is why you have every single district up until this point last week with Hillsborough. Hillsborough themselves, two weeks ago, was in complete agreement. Now they're the only district out of 67, only district, not, except for those in phase one that the governor mentioned, every other district is doing exactly what the emergency order gave them the flexibility to do, and they're doing it with great uh, fanfare. Another reporter wanted to know why Miami-Dade schools can start remotely without facing any financial penalty, while Hillsborough has been denied. The governor says it's because Hillsborough isn't sick enough. Do not say that they're in the same boat as what's happening in South Florida. I mean, the facts do matter on this, and I understand different people can have different views, but let's just, let's just kind of get the facts on the table in terms of what we're dealing with here. And I can tell you, Miami-Dade, um, that superintendent, he, he wants to go. I mean, he wants to find a way. Now, he understands that there's, that there's limitations and understands that their community's in a different spot. Um, but, um, you know, if they're, as soon as there's a pathway, you know, they're going to move very quickly uh, uh, to be able to do it. So, I, like I said, 
we're not at the end of the road here, but to, to, to say that there hasn't been good progress, particularly in the Tampa Bay area, that just wouldn't be looking at, at, at the trends that, that we're seeing. The fact is, um, whether it's CLI, uh, whether it's uh, admissions, whether it's a hospital census, you know, we're in, um, you know, we're going in a good direction in, in, in this area. And, um, and that's just the reality. But that takes us back to the fundamental question. Who is in charge of Florida schools? Is it the governor, the education commissioner, or the local school board? If you read the Constitution, it's the local school board. But if you read the commissioner's executive order on reopening, you get the feeling someone else is pulling the strings. So the questions for the governor are simple. Why are Hillsborough schools facing financial threats for doing what their own health experts advised? And why are orders from politicians trumping the best medical advice? You know, I said from the very beginning of this, you know, there is going to be flexibility. I, I told school districts, if you don't think you're ready on your normal date, you need to move it back, move it back. Um, and I think that we should be flexible and you should be attuned, you know, to the circumstances on the ground. You know, at the same time, um, you know, some of this stuff's just not debatable anymore. I mean, the fact is, in terms of the risk to school kids, um, this is lower risk than seasonal influenza. In terms of their ability to spread it, they're less likely to spread it than they are for that. And so that's just kind of where we're at on that. And so then beyond that is really a policy decision uh, about um, you know, how important is it to get students back in the classroom and how do you balance that against not zero risk, but I would say you know, would be low risk. And so um, uh, most, I think, of the, the school districts um, you know, have, uh, ha have said that we need to give parents the, the choices. After the roundtable discussion ended, Senator Janet Cruz of Tampa issued a statement saying the Ron DeSantis Roadshow is little more than a taxpayer-funded opportunity for the governor to pat himself on the back while he's failing miserably. Senator Lori Berman of Palm Beach County says Florida's haphazard plan to return students to the classroom is akin to throwing what you can at the wall and seeing what sticks. As members of Congress and the president argue over the next round of COVID stimulus payments, hundreds of thousands of Floridians are still wondering what happened to that first check. Kathy bird Cavalla is executive director of the Impact Fund, the Florida chapter of the American Business Immigration Coalition, and she says there's a problem with the way the CARES money was distributed. The last two weeks of CARES negotiations in Congress have not resulted in reaching a deal to bring much-needed relief to millions of American families and small businesses, the engine of our economy. Over the weekend, President Trump announced executive orders whose constitutionality is currently in question. In the meantime, there are over 200,000 American citizens in Florida that have not yet received the economic stimulus check passed by Congress in April. If a U.S. citizen is married to or parented by an immigrant that has not received a social security number, the entire family is penalized. The U.S. citizen's spouse and the children receive nothing. This is an ongoing issue that has not been fixed by Congress nor by the president's executive order. Senators Rubio and Tillis have filed legislation to fix this oversight and make sure that every American citizen has access to the same relief as other U.S. citizens and that they're not penalized for who they choose to marry. Nine Republican senators and nearly every Democrat support stimulus checks for mixed status families, which would inject an additional $341.4 million into the Florida economy. Clara Descua of Coral Springs is one of the Floridians left behind by the restrictions included in the CARES Act. I am a U.S. born citizen and I was born in Texas. I've been married to my husband, Carlos, who is from Honduras since 2014. Although I have petitioned for my husband's green card, he has another pending immigration case. 
and he would have to return to Honduras for 10 years before he could come back. And it is much too dangerous for him to return to Honduras at this time. My husband's brother was murdered in Honduras in September of 2014 by corrupt police and a gang. I'm a proud American citizen and I was a registered Republican until 2016. I love my country and I love my family. My husband has held my hand and supported me through the hardest of times. He was with me through my battle with stage three cancer, the death of our baby and the loss of everything during a hurricane. I cannot imagine one day without him. My son is 29 years old and he is a disabled US combat veteran who served in Afghanistan. He suffers from PTSD as a result of the events during his time in service there. I'm proud of the sacrifices he made to preserve our freedom. The pandemic has been really hard on us. I was doing Instacart delivery, but I had to stop because I am so afraid of the coronavirus. I'm high risk and I'm still battling cancer. I knew that we would not receive a stimulus check for my husband, but I never dreamed that as a US citizen and taxpayer that I would be punished because of who I married. I've had a very hard time paying my electric bill for my mortgage for groceries. The stimulus check was the money that I was counting on to make ends meet. I'm asking Senator Rick Scott not to forget about me and my family. We need help. We have always paid our fair share of taxes and I should not be punished. And our family sacrifices should not be ignored just because of the person I chose to marry. Miami businessman Mike Fernandez used to be a top donor to the GOP, but the party changed when Donald Trump took over and Fernandez says their anti-immigrant stance is hurting Republicans. Most Americans support the logical step of supporting all Americans. They do not differentiate between who you marry or not. If you have you're an American in good standing. Um, you should be receiving these, these benefits, which are dear to meet your everyday obligations without which you could not live. So, so, so it pains me to hear that this kind of uh, actions are still being implemented by, by the politicians in Washington. I've known Rick Scott. Uh, Rick Scott was a good friend of mine. I was the largest donor to Rick Scott's campaign for re-election. Uh, and I, too, like Clara, uh, was a former, I'm a former Republican. Uh, I declined to be part of the Republican Party after 2016, and I became an independent. Rick, I'm going to speak to you directly. I know you're a good man. You and your wife, Anne, and your two girls, you're good people. Please, don't ignore this issue. There are thousands and thousands of Claras out there that are going through the same hurt. And you're in a position to help. That's why you got elected. Don't ignore those Floridians who you can help. And all you have to do is participate along with Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio, and others that support this logical position. So do not be a wall. Do not disappear in us. We want to hear your voice. If you're going to not support it, then speak against it and give us the reasoning. So at least we know what your logic is. Otherwise, please show your face once again. 
Under the CARES Act, an estimated 81,000 Florida taxpayers and 147,000 American children in mixed-status families were denied the stimulus payments. Senator Marco Rubio is one of the prime sponsors of the American Citizen Coronavirus Relief Act, which would eliminate the marriage penalty and provide stimulus checks to all U.S. citizens. Next up on the Sunrise Interview, you'll hear from the leader of the Florida Progressive Wing in the legislature about why she's endorsing the opponents of three of her fellow Democrats. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local health care provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org slash COVID for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. Our guest today is State Representative Anna Eskimani of Orlando, the outspoken but also outnumbered leader of the progressive wing in the Florida Democratic Party. Now, when your party is in the minority, you tend to put your differences aside and support people you really don't like because it's all for the greater good of the party, right? Well, not anymore. No, it should not be the rule. I mean, if, 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 if it's been the rule for so long and we keep losing, then obviously there, there's something wrong with how we're playing the game. Um, and we have some incredible new Democrats that are challenging uh, these three specific individuals. And for me, it's not even about progressivism versus, versus moderates, because this is, these are not moderates. These are Republicans with Democrats in, in their title. And when we look at the actual swing seats, swing seats like the one I secured, I uh, was able to flip in 2018 alongside reps like Rep. Cindy Polo and Rep. Fentress Driscoll, um, Rep. Adam Hattersley. We all come from different backgrounds and different approaches, but we're, we understand the basic values of the Democratic Party, and that is supporting LGBTQ inclusivity and, and those that identify as LGBTQ+, uh, protecting public education, and, and, and at the very least, demanding accountability of, of the privatized voucher system. And of course, supporting access to a safe legal abortion, even if you don't personally support abortion access, understanding that it's a personal medical decision and politicians should not be interfering with that. And, and so that defines, you know, the, 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 the big umbrella of the democratic party, right? right? These three, these three individuals, they're, they don't subscribe to even the most basic moderate perspectives of the democratic party. They, they vote with the Republican caucus. They're funded by the Republican leadership. they, Majority of their funders are also big corporations, um, and not only do they do they vote against basic democratic values, but they 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 really like they they speak towards it. You know, they anchor themselves in it, and and that gets in the support of of the Republican caucus leadership in different ways. And, and meanwhile, it sacrifices our basic values. And when we're a caucus that really relies on every single vote in order to make a difference. You know, there, there, there was a moment on the House floor this past session where uh, we were challenging how the increase in teacher salaries was going to be allocated. You know, really want to make sure that local school districts had more authority over that versus Department of Education. It was, it was every single vote counted for us to be able to uh, stop the Republican caucus from waiving the rules. And so even when we're in the minority, numbers matter. And, and, and I tell folks all the time that if we don't have 
values as, as, as Democrats, then what do we have? Now, you're talking three representatives specifically, Kim Daniels out of Jacksonville, uh, Al Jackett out of Palm Beach County, and Anita Umfroy in Broward. Are there any particular bills or issues that really unite these three in, in drawing your ire? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we kind of listed a few of them, right? So we have um, uh, safe meal access to an abortion, respecting personal medical decisions for those that are going through pregnancy, whether it's to um, choose adoption and the pregnancy or raise a child. As, as political leaders, we should respect the, the, the difficult challenges that come with that decision and ensure clear access to all three. And, and most recently, the parental consent legislation, which, which really is designed to be a, a Trojan horse to ban abortion in the entire state of Florida, um, is one that these folks openly supported. Um, we also have the continuation of expanding the voucher system. And, and this is a, a big special interest in the legislature as well. I mean, we know that there's organizations um, like Florida Federation for Children PAC, and they're running tens of thousands of dollars of mailers and digital ads um, for these candidates and others across the state of Florida. Um, one of their biggest donors is um, a member of the Walmart family. And so that also tells you a little bit about just the corporate influence in these systems. And then, of course, we have LGBTQ plus equality. And in particular, these are members that ha are on video, on radio, in public, using language that is anti-LGBTQ+, and, and, and even on the campaign trail, um, you know, attacking opponents on those type of slurs. And then I think issue-wise, you know, we have to ground ourselves in, in, this, in voting records always, but there's also just the ethical standpoint. And candidly, um, some of these members don't come to meetings. Um, they miss votes on the floor often. Um, there's definitely, um, you know, past conflict in their professional careers that floor politics has reported on more than once. And so um, there's also, I think, just a lot of eyebrow raising within communities around just their, their, their ethical decision making. And, and again, for me, I'm a transparent lawmaker and an individual. I, I take a lot of pride in being uh, an open book. And uh, I think we need more Democrats that also just operate with, with a commitment to show up, show up to work to get the job done, um, but also just operating under ethical standards and guidelines. Now, there's been a lot of talk during the Trump administration about this whole concept of Republicans being afraid to moderate because they will be, quote, trumped in their own primary. So are you now setting it up so that people will be escamonied in the Democratic <laughs> primary? <laughs> I mean, that was never my intention, right? I mean... You know, it's funny, like, like I know some folks are comparing this to AOC and comparing this to some of the national headlines around, you know, Cori Bush, for example, winning her primary and, and, uh, and other leaders across the country that, you know, are really grounded in, in like a, a history of service and a history of, of, of connections to neighborhoods and, you know, doing, doing the organizing work to, to demonstrate to constituents that, you don't have to be, you don't have to settle for the status quo, right? But this is such a Florida situation because again, like these are, they're, these are not, uh, even the candidates who are running, um, uh, I don't know if they would brand themselves as progressives, right? Some might, but I, I think at the end of the day, it's about basic democratic values. Cause I will say, Rick, there are other races happening in Florida that have, you know, primary challengers 
you know, against incumbents that I'm not getting involved with, right? These stand out to me because these are not moderate Democrats. These are straight up Democrats that work and operate as Republicans. <laughs> and, and, then, and if that's the case, then go run as a Republican. But I think it's pretty clear that in these districts where they operate, they couldn't win as a Republican, so they keep the Democratic label. And, and again, if, if, if we don't have values to hold ourselves accountable to just basic standards of what it means to be a Democrat, then why are we here? And, and I tell folks all the time, you know, if you want to inspire everyday people to get involved in politics and to make that small dollar donation to your campaign and to come, you know, uh, make phone calls with you or send text messages with you to be a first time voter for you. You got to you got to inspire them. And a part of that is demonstrating that you have values. Critics might tell you Eskimani is no better than Donald Trump for opposing people in her own party. But there's a difference here. When the president turns on a fellow Republican, it's almost always personal. Eskimani is targeting these Democrats because of issues, not personalities. Your calendar of events begins at 8.30 when the nominating commission for the First Circuit will interview candidates for a judgeship in Escambia County. The Education Estimating Conference talks about enrollment in the Florida College System at 9. The Suwannee River Water Management District Governing Board holds an online meeting at 9. The nominating commission for the Second Circuit Judicial will interview candidates for a circuit judge and a Leon County judge. That's at 9. The St. John's River Water Management District Governing Board meets at 10 in Palatka. The Florida Gulf Coast University Board of Trustees holds a conference call meeting at 11. The University of North Florida Trustees hold an online meeting at 11. The trustees at Florida State College of Jacksonville meet in conference call at 1. The Broward College trustees meet online at 1. The Palm Beach State College trustees hold an online meeting at 1.30. And the Florida Gateway College Board of Trustees, they meet at 5 in Lake City. Finally today, a Florida man is accused of attacking his Lyft driver because he was angry about a plastic shield that had been installed to protect against COVID-19. The Flagler County Sheriff's Office says 36-year-old Travis Smith is charged with battery and child abuse. Smith says he grabbed the guy and forced him to pull over because of his erratic driving. But the driver says Smith attacked while the vehicle was in motion, pulling down the plastic partition and putting him in a chokehold. When deputies checked out the interior dash camera footage, the video confirmed the driver's story and Smith was carted off to jail. That child abuse charge was filed because there was a seven-year-old in the car at the time. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics. 